This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with author and coach Julie L. Hall about the 12 unspoken rules of engagement in the narcissistic family. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today, I have Julie L. Hall. How are you? Hi, Brandon. I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Well, you're back. You are back. And for those that don't know, you were, I think, Think our first guest ever on our Q&As in February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. You were the first backer of our show uh, of professionals as well. So really from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here with us from the beginning of of our Q&A sessions and being a real big supporter of the show. You know, we discussed in our original uh, conversation the uh, narcissistic family specifically, we discussed the scapegoat in the narcissistic family and the role that they played and what they had to endure. And, uh, you know, for those that don't know Julie, besides being on our podcast way back when, uh, Julie is an author, a journalist, a coach, and a speaker. And your writing has been in Psychology Today, Reuters, Huffington Post, The Nation, The Seattle Times, The Chicago Sun-Times, Psych Central, and many other news outlets. You are also the author of the book, The Narcissist in Your Life, Recognizing the Patterns and Learning to Break Free. And your book is often discussed in our support group. Everyone in our group loves your book. You did a really great job with that book. And for those people listening, uh, Julie's book is fantastic. So buy her book. And today we are going to talk about the 12 unspoken rules of engagement in the narcissistic family and as an offshoot, how the coping mechanisms that were created to to survive those situations will eventually uh, attract, most likely attract you into an unhealthy uh, adult relationship or unhealthy coping mechanisms as you grow older. And this came from an article that you wrote on your website where you have a lot of great articles and you can find Julie's website at narcissistfamilyfiles.com. Uh, 
com. So let's just get into it right now. Let's get into the 12 unspoken rules of engagement in the narcissistic family. So I just want to briefly just define what a narcissistic family is. Um, it's essentially a family where the needs of the parents are, are the focus of everybody. So, so it turns the healthy family model upside down. Um, instead of focusing on supporting the children's healthy development, the primary focus is on supporting the parents or parents, the narcissistic parent or parents. So um, that's where people are focusing. That's, and the children try to meet those needs in various different ways. And, and I want to also just point out the article mentions um, so there are other kinds of dysfunctional families, like families that are, um, you know, where there's addiction driving a lot of what's going on in the family dynamic. And like other kinds of dysfunctional families, the narcissistic family, there is ongoing abuse and there's corresponding denial of that abuse. Um, there is, there's typically, there's neglect, um, there's secrecy. There's a lack of empathy. Um, there's disrespect for boundaries. There's ongoing boundary violations um, and ongoing conflict. So those are some of the sort of um, overarching uh, conditions that people are experiencing. It's a it's it's a, an emotionally illiterate environment. Um, there's fear of emotion. There's lack of understanding of it, and it's pathologized on an, as ongoing pathologizing of, of, of feelings and emotions and human needs. So the 12 rules that I have uh, identified, these are kind of, you know, very, very typical kind of dynamics that play out in the narcissistic family environment. Um, and these, I want to, I, before I jump into this, I want to just say that the dysfunction can be uh, quite covert can be uh, implied. A lot of these behaviors and situations are subtle. I mean, they're not necessarily hit you over the head obvious. Um, so um, one thing sort of uh, probably kind of the core uh, fundamental um, situation in the narcissistic family is that acceptance itself is conditional. So love, affection, inclusion, respect are not freely given. So um, acceptance from the parents is highly conditional. The, the children are expected um, to comply with the, fam with the parents' value system and what is expected of them rather than um, having free, free expression of self. Um, so whatever interests the children, whatever um, they, whatever is authentic for them is irrelevant. And it's, and it's, it has, you know, the children learn very early on that to avoid conflict, to please their parents, get whatever attention and caretaking they can get, it, they have to comply with the value system of the family and the expectations of the parents. So, so these things right here can create um, or, or they, they can manifest in so many ways when you're older from perfectionism being one, fear of failure, another, you know, the, the issue of being good enough and having to 
do something for someone else to feel that you are good enough for them uh, when entering future relationships as you get older. And I'm sure there are a myriad more Mm -hmm. that I haven't mentioned here, but these are like just the three off the top of my head, which I'm sure are going to, uh, as, as this list unfolds, this is going to be a theme of these, these types of issues Mm -hmm. that are, that that will manifest later on in life where they were used as a survival technique during this time, because that's what you needed to do to survive, to not be the scapegoat, to not be ostracized. But later on in life, those things will not serve you anymore, creating even more havoc. Right. And and that, um, so yeah, I mean, one way of looking at that is that kids in that environment, um, they take on coping styles. And and so the, what you just mentioned, for example, about perfectionism, that's a coping style. And it's a really common one in a narcissistic family. Um, and... So the, the problem with coping styles, so they're, adapt, they're, they're adaptive changes that we make in our behavior, in our patterns, and they make sense in childhood as a way to get, get our needs met as best we can in an impoverished, in an empathetically impoverished and volatile, unstable um, environment that is not safe, um, emotionally not safe and maybe physically not safe. Um, so we take on these coping patterns like perfectionism, like avoidance, um, like people pleasing, and they serve us as they serve us in childhood. But what tends to happen is that they we take them forward, and um, what we what we've kind of done is we've compartmentalized ourselves in taking on these coping styles, and. Um, so moving forward in life in adulthood, we're, we still hold, we tend to hold on to these coping styles, what we know, it's conditioned behavior, and they don't serve us then in adulthood. We get trapped in these patterns that set us up for failure, that set us up for unhappiness, that set us up for burnout, like with perfectionism, um, that set us up for, you know, problems with boundaries, which is what's happening with the people pleasing for example and disconnection from self this is complex trauma developmental trauma is another way of putting it it's ongoing um traumatizing circumstances for over a long period of time throughout our growth in childhood and adolescence and young adulthood so it's developmental it affects our identity development in other words so a child in, in that environment with dis- disruptions of trust and attachment trauma, essentially. I mean, a child in a narcissistic family is experiencing attachment trauma, and they're experiencing it throughout their growing up years, as long as they're in that family system. Um, and so they're, they're, So what we do in response, what humans do in response, is we deny, we blame ourselves, we internalize shame. And we try to conform to the things that our parents seem to be asking of us. And we, so we take on these coping styles um, and we typically, we disconnect from the emotional self. We disconnect from our physical bodies. We really, um, because we are trying to preserve that connection and because we're denying some of those terrifying realities that we're experiencing, those violations of trust. Um, 
essentially what that is, is like the person who's meant to love and care for me is hurting me. The person who's my person, who's my main model in life, isn't safe. Um, so we must deny that to ourselves and, um, and, um, and find ways, other ways of coping. So perfectionism is essentially trying to inoculate ourselves from criticism, right? Like the, the narcissistic family, another component of it is that it's a highly critical environment. And the, criti- the critical environment, again, it can be subtle. It can be more implied than explicit, but everybody knows it. Everybody knows that it's a critical environment where people are going to be blamed, where people are going to be um, possibly pathologized for their behavior, where they're, um, you know, going to be um, potentially ostracized or scapegoated. And with people-pleasing, again, that's a fawning response. I, I need to try to appease and please that parent and try to avoid conflict that way and try to keep things calm at home. And some kids get really, really good at it. They get, you know, um, they become, they become highly, highly skilled at, at anticipating the needs of the parent and meet, trying to meet those needs to head off problems. And what happens when we're doing this people pleasing in, in childhood is that we disconnect from ourselves we disconnect from our own needs we 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 must um basically we don't we we don't have permission to have boundaries that's another piece in this is that um in order to stay connected to that parent we must endure boundary violations we must lower our boundaries that the 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 responses that keep us safe the ways in which our um you know for example when we're being violated, it's a natural human response to feel anger. That is a physical response to a violation, whether it's an emotional or physical violation. And we all have that built in to being human. It keeps us safe. It allows us to mount a defense and protect ourselves. Um, so getting angry is normal and healthy. We can't get angry at that narcissistic parent. We all know that that parent is going to be the one who's going to be who's going to bring the most anger and it's going to be terrifying and it's going to possibly result in being neglected or being, you know, harmed. Sorry. And when you bring up anger and not allowed to be angry, there are so many of us out there who, when we've gotten older, we don't know how to be angry. So when we are first trying to figure out that you're allowed to be angry and trying to express that anger. For so many of us, it comes out in the worst way where then you say to yourself, that didn't go very well. And then you kind of be like that, you know, being angry, right? you know, I'm going to shut up again and I'm going to internalize my anger. And it becomes more of trying to figure out like what anger is, how, how to express it properly because you're, you're trying to learn because you've never done it before. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of that disconnecting from our physical, from our bodies, from our sensations, from our, um, from the ways in which we have emotions to help us, to guide us in life, to keep us protected and safe. That 
the emotion of anger is a natural, normal human defense to being violated in whatever way we're being violated. And it is important and it is very tough. It, it is, there's, it's never allowed in the narcissistic family. That's like, that's one of the rules, right? Is the only person who gets that to be angry is that dominant narcissist um, and possibly the golden child who is that a favored child often there's a favored child in the in the family who is given uh you know free reign and more permission to act out or have needs or feelings although again everybody is unsafe in the narcissistic family environment the golden child suffers too just in different ways um but yeah i mean the issue of anger is such a major one for anybody coming out of this kind of family. Um, we we have trouble with our own emotional regulation. Like we don't get good modeling and, and help with regulating our own emotions in childhood, which is one of the main parts of growing. Of it's one of the main developmental challenges of childhood, of early childhood in particular. Childhood in particular is learning how to manage our own emotions, how to manage our needs, how to manage disappointment, how to manage having to wait for things, um, you know, all kinds of different emotions, how to share, how to cooperate, how to manage, you know, and how to manage those big emotions like anger. Um, So what we were, as you were just saying here about, you know, only the, the uh, alpha of, of the family that the, the narcissist is allowed to be, angry and everyone else has to go into this submissive role in a sense, which becomes uh, number two on the uh, unspoken rules of the narcissistic family, which is submission is required. So can you go into that a little bit? Sure. And, And that's a good way to describe it, right? Like that is essentially what is happening is that the that dominant narcissist in the family is the family is very hierarchical and and that's that's the it's it's essentially a tyranny like and the nar- main dominant narcissist is at, at the head of it um and they you know they're they insist on dominance they insist on their getting their way they insist on pushing whatever narrative is convenient to them that they want to believe um that um and so other people are expected to fall in line other people are expected to submit to the family line, to the dominance of, of the parents, in particular that one most dominant parent. Um, so, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter how arbitrary or foolish or cruel or destructive the, um, that parent is and that parent's narratives are, um, everybody is expected to swallow them. And um, so getting back to the list, yeah, that's number two. So number one is acceptance is conditional. Number two is submission is required. And then we get into, um, we get into blame. So there's always blame in a narcissistic family environment. Um, and that ties in with the next, the next point, which is vulnerability is dangerous. That's one of the number one rules for narcissists in general is they view vulnerability as a liability. They, they're, what they're 
always sort of trying to do is avoid being vulnerable and feeling vulnerable because the expectation is that people will attack when we're vulnerable, that, that we're not on the same team, that we're always competing and vying for dominance and, and, and going for the jugular. Um, so there's going to be, so vulnerability is attacked. Vulnerability is, you know, if we're vulnerable, we're humiliated, we're attacked, we're treated as inferior. Um, so it's not safe. So even, so mistakes, accidents, um, weaknesses are, are, you know, cause for shaming treatment. They're not, we're not on the same team. Yeah, and, and, and this one is in particularly, uh, in particular, uh, very uh, lethal in, in my opinion, you know, in, in other ways, uh, acting out or, or expressing your opinion with, uh, you know, when it comes to submission or acceptance or, you know, being blamed is one thing. But here we're talking about your emotions and the internalization of everything. And it, to me, that becomes a really uh just it, it becomes very dangerous for the, for the person who's now internalizing everything because the, the trust of putting these very very sacred things in someone else's hand only to be shot down and destroyed it really takes your self-worth and can put you into a level that it's very hard to come back from um you know and you know this is to me the vulnerability aspect of everything puts you into the area of you know someone that thinks that they the only way to 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 cope is to is to take your own life uh because everything about you with these vulnerabilities in the essence of who you are and your emotions not mattering it's taking away your life and uh everything about who you're supposed to be and it, it's kind of gone and that puts you in a real hole of depression uh, sadness despair and that's not easy to come back from and so that's it's a really number four to me like the vulnerability aspect is really um huge in, in my opinion as far as far as, as as far as the, the psyche of yeah. someone at that point in their life and then going forward because at that point you're a lot of people don't have any um there's no safety and if they do find someone later on in life that they think is safe a lot of the time they might uh because they don't have any self-worth put their vulnerabilities into someone else's hands and uh in a very codependent manner and not putting it keeping it within themselves and then once you're you do that with someone else then Good luck, because if you that person is a bad person, then uh, you you have a, another big problem on your hands. Right, and and that's you know that's the lesson of the narcissistic family, right? Is is that vulnerability is not safe, which is absurd because we're all vulnerable. We're incredibly vulnerable. We're all wrapped in this, you know, this this tender flesh, and we're all um, part of this enormous. Um, seven, seven and a half billion of us 
on the planet, right? And we're tiny and we're, <laughs> and, and we're one of many and we have needs and we cannot survive without one another. We're highly cooperative uh, social creatures. We need one another. We, we need to have ourselves mirrored in others, our emotions mirrored in others. We need love. We need validation. Um, and th- that those are just built into being human. And the narcissistic mindset is, no, I'm not vulnerable. Vulnerability is weakness and must be hidden, must be denied. And that's the lesson that the kids get. And it's not actually realistic. It doesn't work that way. And it's essentially a lie. And, but what happens then is that the, you know, kids who don't develop into narcissists themselves coming out of this kind of family, they become, they're, they don't have a good gauge of, uh, their, their, their emergency response system is essentially broken because, um, they, so we, what happens is people who end up being on that more kind of codependent end of the spectrum, um, we don't have a good gauge for who is safe and who is not safe because we've had an unsafe person as our primary caretaker and model in life. And so it's violations of trust have been normalized in that environment. And what we've learned essentially is that intimacy feels dangerous and love and connection and intimacy and vulnerability always are mixed up with feelings of danger and um, it sets us up for abuse patterns in our adult relationships. It sets us up for addic- addictive abuse cycles. Um, so, you know, going through these first four things, this reminds me of a, a very quick story. And it's uh, about 12 years ago, uh, a family friend was in from Meditown, who I've known since I was probably 10 years old, eight, somewhere like that, eight to 10 years old. And it was an adult that I actually always got along with. And he looks at me and he says, Brandon, I finally learned the secret of parenting. And he's 65, around 65 at this point. And I go, what's that? He goes, all I ever had to say to my kids was, I believe in you. I'm behind you 100%. And he goes, and it took me this long to figure that out. And I was like, congratulations, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but that's someone who, I love it. who, you know, might not have been great, you know, didn't understand certain things, but tried and kind of went to therapy. It's very rare. And he, he was not, uh, let's just say, uh, he's not, not a narcissist, but maybe an emotionally mature, immature parent. Mm-hmm. And but they mm-hmm. went in and did the work, and they got to a point, even though it was way too late. But he wanted to try and figure things out, and he was happy with himself while talking to me about this. He was proud that he had finally learned <laughs> this thing, and I sat mm-hmm. there as this young person, being like, "Yeah, like isn't that pretty obvious?" And um, it's. It's it's kind of interesting or mind-boggling that that's not in many parents' thought process. That that's that's sure. just you yeah, know, part of is. part like two things: show up <laughs> wherever you are, yeah, and show up. I'm I'm behind you, 
you know, whatever you doing, mm-hmm. I'm behind mm-hmm. you. Not do what I do. Right. Do what I say. It's just whatever you're going to do, you, I got your back. Simple. Yeah. It's and, so and simple. The, I mean, that is, that it is simple. It really is simple. Um, and it, <laughs> it, that, that really is what little humans need. It's what we all need is people to show up and, and love us, accept us and have our back. That's what we're all looking for in relationships. So up next, number five. Side, taking sides. Um, so in that atmosphere of ongoing blame and shame and, and emotional and, and um, you know, vulnerability as unsafe, um, there's also the sort of insistence on taking sides. So, um, again, it's not, it's not this. It's not the healthy family um, perspective, which is, hey, we're all on the same side. There aren't sides. We're, we're a family. We love each other. We have each other's back. Um, it, it, no, it, it, I'm, <laughs> I'm on this side. Either you're on my side or you're on the wrong side, and you're going to be rejected and, and ostracized. Um, and the right side in the narcissistic family is, is the dominant narcissist side, right? It's, it's that loudest um, weakest member of the family, um, right? Like the, the, the family tyrant is its weakest member. It, it's that person who's emotionally dysregulated, who's highly needy, who has profound emotional deficits. That's the narcissist, right? They have huge deficits in their development. Um, they have a very simplistic view of things and that, and that, and that's part of it too, that, insistence on sides it's that black and white binary thinking that the narcissist has and again that's a developmental deficit they have that they haven't they didn't reach that developmental milestone in childhood so they see things in really black and white terms particularly like you know emotion human human emotion and feelings um so what the kids find themselves dealing with then is having to you know having either either siding with that dominant abusive narcissist or, or being targeted or being, you know, targeted with rage and blame and shame and all kinds of stuff, right? Like the narcissist can, they have to be right. That's the, one of the crazy, um, totally nonsensical parts of narcissism um, is that they have to always be right and perfect in a sense. Right. And they have to believe that about themselves as absurd as it is. And they expect everyone around them to go along with that. I mean, the, the, the side, the, the side, taking sides has ter- terrible consequences for the kids because the kids have, um, are always needing to connect with both their parents. The, that is just built in, right? We need both of our parents. We need their love. We look to them as attached. You know, they are our primary attachment figures in life. They're our models and protectors. And kids need to connect with both parents. They should never be put in a position where they have to take sides and push one parent away. But that is 
a very common dynamic that plays out in the narcissistic family. And in a divorce scenario, it can get even more escalated into the, you know, alienating uh, one parent. You know, typically that narcissistic parent, the more narcissistic one, um, may, you know, do alienating messaging to the kid, uh, you know, um, tearing down that other parent, basically, and and that's a whole nother conversation about parental alienation, but, um, but the kids and, and, and not just, uh, taking sides with the parents, but the kids often, you know, become alienated from one another. There's divisions among the siblings. It's super common. And it's, unfortunately it's the norm. I mean, there's sometimes exceptions where the kids stay connected with one another and band together. Um, but, more typically, there are divisions that can be lifelong and are truly tragic. And one of the things, my personal feeling about it is, well, it's one of the greatest losses in all of this, um, is that sibling, the sibling loyalty and respect and closeness um, is often lost. Yeah, I think we discussed that uh, in our first conversation uh, almost two years ago, which is, you know, the sad thing, I think it was with you, that, that the sad thing about all this is that those relationships, the, the sibling ones, never formed. It's just, just, sad, just sad in general. Right. And it is really such a, such a grief. It is such a loss. Um, and, um, you know, and, and it's often magnified by that, the, the roles that kids are pushed into, you know, and the typical, typical scapegoating of one child, um, and maybe elevating of another. And then, you know, the other roles can play out too, like the lost child and the mascot. And, um, yeah, so. Well, you can look at, you can look at it, you can look at that in the sense of, uh, it being a machine uh, or, or a cog within the machine. Everyone is their own cog and they have their own specific uh, value and, and use. Mm-hmm. They're, they're right. not in the same department. They're just making the machine run. It, re- it dehumanizes everyone, right? So then we become these mechanical parts that are meeting the needs of, you know, the, the narcissistic parent. Um, where, you know, it's not about who we are, our human complexity. It's about what, what, what role we can play for that parent. So the next one up on our list here is there is never enough love and respect to go around. Yeah. So there's this mentality that, um, that you can only gain if someone else loses. That it's a zero sum game. And so everything is so instead of understanding that, in fact, love and respect, inclusion, affection, all these wonderful things that we all need from our family, um, those are renewable resources in a healthy family environment. There's plenty of it to go around. And Somebody else doesn't have to lose in order for someone else to gain. Um, but in the narcissistic family, that is the belief system. And it's highly competitive. There's ongoing com- competition for resources. And there's this survivalist scarcity sort of mentality about these emotional resources. And so, um, so again, the, the siblings are often pitted against one another. And there's 
a deficit of resources for people. And so people are really vying for this, those things like validation and acknowledgement, affection and love, essentially, right? Um, so there's, there's always that going on. And jumping to the next point, so feelings are wrong. I mean, like feelings themselves are pathologized. Um, there, it's a highly emotionally illiterate environment where there's this belief that that emotions are are bad and and not to be trusted and and must be um, pushed away and um, and so kids, I mean, our emotions are simply there to guide us. They help us tell us when we're safe. They help us get our needs met. Um, it's um, it's an amazing it's an amazing system how humans work. Like um, our emotions are there to guide us. They let us know what what's happening around us. They tell us, you know, who's safe and who's not safe, um, and what we need in any given moment to be safe and to get our to get our needs met. So, um, but in the narcissistic family, you know, it's it's this illiteracy of, about emotion and. The reason for this, one of the reasons for this, as I see it, is that basically the narcissist is a it, the narcissist is a toddler in a, an adult body. Like they're they're so undeveloped emotionally, they have such primitive emotional understanding, and they're driven by their their emotions actually drive them. They don't understand their feelings. They don't have control over their emotions. They don't have good emotional regulation. And they're so, they're so de, de, uh, alienated from their emotional selves because they're trying to, to armor themselves from vulnerability. Um, they ironically end up being driven by their emotions. So they're dictated by their emotions. They think they're in charge, but they're actually not at all. <laughs> they're they're being they're dysregulated they're volatile they don't understand themselves and they don't understand others um and so but but that so that you know toddler in an adult body if you think about a toddler or preschooler they they can't really hold space for other people's needs right that that's not developed they haven't developmentally gotten there yet and and that's kind of how the narcissist I mean that is how the narcissist is right like if anybody has a need they regard that as competition for getting their needs met so they want to crush that need they want to welch other people's feelings so feelings the expression of feelings is pathologized um you know people are told that it's selfish that, that children learn that they must repress their feelings um and um, that the only person in the family who really has, who has free reign to express feelings and have emotional reactions and make demands and ask things is that narcissistic toddler. So up next, number eight, which kind of is related to number six, competition, not cooperation, rules the day. Right, so... Again, getting back to that highly competitive, hierarchical, dominating environment. Um, and, yeah, I mean, 
people do. The narcissist doesn't learn to play nice. They don't learn how to cooperate. They see other people essentially as the enemy to be competed with and vied with. And so that's the value system in the narcissistic family. So kids, kids are in competition with each other. And um, often the two parents are competing. Um, and it's that, you know, so one-upmanship, favoritism, constant ongoing comparison between siblings and others in the family. It's a harshly competitive environment. And it breeds, you know, it breeds distrust. It breeds violence. It breeds betrayal, um, and uh, so. And then jumping into the next point, appearances are more important than substance. Um, and yeah, so got to smile for the family photo, even if you're crying inside. Um, and um, in fact, I, I I think many of my clients ha- have actually photos of themselves from childhood when they've been crying. Like the family photo shows shows the unhappiness. Um, but but yeah, I mean, well, well um, when, when you talk about the family photos, I it just made me think of a, a really interesting idea for the show, or, or maybe for something that we put on our website would be to ask people to send in their photos. So everyone who's listening to this right now, send in your photos to me of a family photo and what was actually going on and explain to everyone what was going on that day and the reality of the situation and maybe where that photo might have been placed within your home where every time you walk by it, it just made you so upset because you know the reality of that photo and what was going on that day and what was going on with yeah, you. Yeah, I love, I love it. And I love the idea. I, I would imagine there are many people out there who are thinking right now of a specific photo that they want to share. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, there's not in – in my home, there's not a specific photo of technically what you're kind of going through or, or what is that. And mine's more not really of a – narcissistic kind of day, but there was one day, there was this picture with me and my dad and everyone's like, Oh, that's such a great photo of you. Look how thin you were. And to me, I'm like, great. Like no one knows that I'm manorexic in this photo. So Mm -hmm. everyone's always complimenting this photo. But to me, I just look at it and say, this is the height of like, just some terribleness that is going on mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. life and, and it's being complimented. Um, you know, look how great, like, yeah. you know, and this, but like the reality of that photo is that I was like slowly killing myself um, to look that way for appearances. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Appearances matter more than substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I will, I will, um, I have a, a photo that comes to mind of, of myself, um, I, that I recently saw because I ended up, um, going home, going to one of my parents' homes recently that I hadn't been to in a long time. And there was a photo of the family that I hadn't seen, you know, in a long time. And, uh, there I was. Um, obviously having been crying and I remember the day 
I don't remember why I was crying, but um, I can guess. I can make a pretty good guess, but um, it was a typical scenario, you know, um, where family togetherness was, it was the miserable, the miserable family, family pretending to be happy together. Um, and I, yeah, so I was, and, and I wasn't doing a very good job of, of uh, concealing my unhappiness, which um, I guess was one of my issues. And that led me to be the person who wrote this book. <laughs> um, yeah. So being scapegoated and not, um, not being okay with that um, and needing, needing to speak out against it. So next up on our list, we have 10 rage is normalized. Rage is normalized. Right. Um, the, the, the narcissist is driven, really, really driven by rage. Even the more covert one who is very careful about not revealing that rage, about concealing it, especially with people, you know, in public, um, there's always rage. There's always rage below the surface. And it often, it often explodes. And it ex- usually explodes in the privacy of home behind closed doors. Um, and it's something that all the members of the family live with and it's what keeps everybody in a state of hyper vigilance so we're always listening for is mom or dad have does mom or dad have an angry door slam when they get home and pull in the driveway and shut the door is mom or dad you know are, are their footsteps conveying anger are we in for an explosion are we in for a rough night um yeah, so, but rage is, is always happening. And, and, and um, well, always... I, I, I want to say something about this, specifically for the people who are yeah. listening to this, who are in relationships, who might have come from this type of stuff, and, and for the relationship people who, you know, this is, to me, uh, number 10 here, is part of chaos and how a lot of people are used to chaos. And this is the rage kind of stuff. You're used to these outbursts. You're used to these things. So when you do get into the relationships later on and someone has this type of outburst, it's normal to you. It's, it's, you know, it's something that doesn't scare you away. Like it might scare someone else away because you're used to it. You know how to deal with it in some sort of ways. And, you know, a lot of people who grew up in chaotic environments with these things going on, we get used to the, you know, in the gambler's mentality, gamblers like action. And you get used to the action. You get used to the chaos. So when something isn't chaotic and there is no action, it might be boring to that person. So the normalization of rage uh, creates the uh, possibility later on for someone to ignore it feel like they know how to deal with it. And I don't say ignored in, in, in that sense, just like because it's so normal that it's it bounces off you in a, in a different way. And it keeps you in a relationship in a little bit longer than you might be in one if you were never used to something like this. Right, right, right. It, it's normal to you. It's, it's not necessarily a red flag. 
even though it really should be. And, and, um, and, and number 10 can be paired with a number three on our list, which is someone must be blamed for a problem. So for someone to rage out at you and then say that rage was your fault when it had nothing to do with you can then be carried on later into an adult relationships where then someone is raging and then you're thinking they rage because it was me. Right. Right. Yeah. It sets us up for, for rage, for partnering with, with other people who are rageful. Yeah, and accepting that as normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and rage always creates fear, right? Like we all have a fear response to rage. And and we if if we're feeling the beginnings of rage, the possibility of rage, we're anticipating it. We're in that state of hyperarousal fear, anticipating the explosion. And that's the reality for so many of us in the narcissistic family and then later in a narcissistic relationship in adulthood. Um, we think that's normal. And it isn't. And it's not safe. And it keeps us in hyperarousal, which, and when I say hyperarousal, I mean in an elevated emergency response mode in our bodies, that fight flight, freeze, fawn mode where, uh, you know, our bodies get into overdrive. We are, we jump from the prefrontal cortex into the amygdala brain. We, um, our breathing escalates and becomes shallow. Our heart races, um, our, you know, our, um, adrenaline and cortisol are pumping and we're getting ready to protect ourselves in one way or another. Um, and it is never meant to be a way of life. Right. And yet it becomes a way of life when we're in in that uh, environment where rage is normalized. Um, And that has profound, profound um, devastating effects physically on our health to be in that to be in that kind of environment over long periods of time. Um, So jumping to the next one um denial is rampant and and i'm going to add to that um also projection is rampant um so denial of the abuse going on denial of the rage denial of the ongoing fear denial of um of the unhappiness in the family um denial of the the ongoing abuse of the scapegoat um denial of you know, uh, of, of all the dynamics that are happening, all the dysfunction. Um, and, and when I add projection to that, you know, the, the narcissist is, they constantly engage in denial and projection. Those are, and those are early childhood. So denial is a childhood develop normal developmental phase. So we all use denial to project, to protect ourselves to protect the self, um, you know, and it, it's developmentally normal. We usually grow out of it by about age seven. Then we move more into projection where if we're having an uncomfortable feeling that doesn't, that, that we may feel uncomfortable with or ashamed of, like jealousy, for example, um, we will project that onto somebody else. We'll, we'll tell ourselves that that other person is having that jealousy problem, not ourselves, right? Um, and that's something that we know, those of us who have been in relationship with narcissists, we know that they project their own feelings and behavior on others all the time. It's a compulsive behavior. <laughs> and they usually know on some level that they're doing it. 
but they can rationalize it to themselves. Um, same thing with the denial. The denial, um, narcissists typically know when they're denying things. They can tell the difference between fact and fiction, between a lie and, a tr- and truth, but they engage in what I call willful denial. They choose to deny things. They choose not to see things. They choose to bend the truth to fit their needs. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an atmosphere of denial and, and projecting um, and not taking, account, not taking ownership of our own feelings and behavior. And um, getting to number 12, and this sort of is what we've been talking about ongoing here, is that there's no safety, right? Um, and, you know, everyone feels that. Even if, even if there's one person who's particularly usually targeted with negativity and blame, like the scapegoated person or maybe a scapegoated spouse, um, everyone feels the tension and the lack of safety. And, and that is what creates, you know, that, and that then ties back in with what I was saying about the hyper arousal that, you know, it creates a hyper vigilant environment for everybody where they're, everyone is aware that, that they're not safe and that vulnerability is not safe. Um, and, you know, um, safety is the number one thing we're looking for in our relationships. It's what we need. It's what we need in our family. Um, it's what, in particular, children need in their family and with their parents. And um, when there isn't that safety, when things are so volatile and chaotic, and um, it has devastating consequences, and, you know, it, it changes, it, it, it lowers our immunity, it lowers our life expectancy, um, it creates all kinds of health problems, um, it has long-term, lifelong impact, um, so... It's, it's a and big one. When you say health issues, you know, besides being exhausting, creating stress, you know, because you're always on alert, um, other things that can manifest would be obsessive compulsive disorder um, and things along on those lines because of the hypervigilance that you might have grown up with of not feeling safe. You know, when I say obsessive compulsive disorder, I say, you know, a lot of people have things with locks where things always have to be locked. There's something to do with the safety of, you know, going downstairs or wherever you are, locking your door, going back, is it locked, going back and locking your door, or even to, did I turn the stove off? Did I do this? You know, things along those lines Mm -hmm. can manifest out of that where you wouldn't think that that could be a manifestation, but those things do happen. Oh, yeah. I see a lot of OCD stuff in, you know, um, relating around the narcissistic family and narcissistic trauma. And, you know, it's I, I see it as a it's a response to feeling out of control. So what do we do when we feel out of control? Um, we try to control what we can. Right. <laughs> and so um, some, some it's an adaptive response. I mean, it, it becomes its own problem. Um, you know, obsessive compulsive behavior and patterns become their own problem then later, but it is just an adaptive response to try to feel like we have some control over our circumstances. 
So Julie, I really want to thank you for being here with me today, for sharing all of your knowledge once again. And before you go, uh, what do you want people to know about what's kind of going on with you right now and where they can find you and find all of your stuff? Um, well, thank you, Brandon. It was really a pleasure to come back. I really appreciate it. Um, and um, let's see, what am I up to? <laughs> um, I am coaching. I have. Um, I am taking some new clients from time to time. Um, and so reach out to me if you want to try to work together. And um, I'm booking in, in mid-February right now, but I am taking, I'm taking some new people here and there. Um, and, um, I have, and I have my book out there, The Narcissist in Your Life, Recognizing the Patterns and Learning to Break Free. It is, um, it is really a lot of it is about narcissistic families and, and then narcissistic relationships in adulthood because that is often the pattern is that we grow up in that environment, it becomes normalized for us, and then we repeat that pattern in adulthood until we can gain awareness and make healthier choices. Um, and I also have a, um, I have a podcast course that is a 90-minute uh, audio course through Himalaya Learning that I'm proud of that is, has a lot of my, um, my teachings about narcissism and how it develops and how it plays out in people's lives and, and how, you know, how it affects others, how it traumatizes others. Um, it's called Understanding Narcissism. You can find a link to it on my website. Um, my website is NarcissistFamilyFiles.com. Yeah, so everyone, all of these things will be in our show notes, uh, so you'll be able to find everything easily. And once again, uh, thank you so much for being here, Julie. You have blessed us with so much knowledge, and everyone out here is thankful that you're here today. So big thank you. And for everyone who wants to be a guest on our Survivor Story episode, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page. There's a guest form button. Click on that button, fill out the form, and we will go from there. And for professionals that want to be on the show, please also do get a hold of me. Go to that website as well, NarcissistApocalypse.com. Click on that button. Even though it says guest form, it's for something else. Just fill out the form, send it to me, and we'll go from there as well. I love seeing going from there. It's one of my things that just pops out of my mouth. Anyway, everyone, if you need support, come to our support group. Our support group is also at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a support button. You click on that button. It takes you to our very own safe social network. And at our safe social network, we have forum boards. We have Zoom groups every Wednesday night and Saturday night. In the new year, we think we're going to be going to an afternoon as well for the people who are in Europe and uh, who work from home or, or have to be at home during during the day. And also on there, we have bonus episodes. We have ad-free episodes. And if you just want to support the show, just join the group. Support our show. Support our cause. It helps a lot of people. And another thing that helps a lot of people is DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. 
because DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. They can connect you with your local resources and find ways for you to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource today. And everyone, again, I just want to thank everyone for for being a part of our show, being part of uh, what we're doing here, all the guests that we've had on over the last few years. I just want to send a big thanks to them as well as we're, you know, we're in December now, closing out the, the new year, the stretch run, as you would say. And we're going to have a lot of changes coming forward, such as, you know, the structure of the show and how we, where things are placed and so I just want to thank everyone for, for being supportive, and uh, that's it for now. Uh, hopefully in, in future weeks, uh, this end part of the show, hopefully I'll get my old pal Melissa on here to chit-chat with me and, and discuss stuff, maybe do like an extra five to ten minutes, whoever wants to hear us chit-chat, and maybe we'll get Vienna back on here just to do some stuff, or maybe even some past guests uh, that want to come back and just have a little quick chit-chat, a, a catch-up or something along those lines. So if you're a former guest, get a hold of me and also listen to the ads, everyone. <laughs> listen to the ads. You know, you don't have to uh, listen to them. You can take your headphones off. Just let them play through. It helps out the show a lot if you just let the ads run. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you in advance. So uh, I guess besides that, I hope everyone is doing well. And that is that. So everyone from Julie L. Hall and myself, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>